0: Joining our series on this episode is legendary stockbroker, corporate advisor and philanthropist Charles Good AC. Charles, pleasure speaking with you this morning and thanks for your time. Given your career as a stockbroker, I wanted to open up with the stockbroking industry and and the stock market. What are you seeing in terms of markets at the moment?
1: Well, it's a very difficult question. There's a lot of money around. And that's given, giving rise to very high levels of, for the shares on traditional values like price earnings or price to book. But there's momentum trading. There's new technology. Some of these uh, technology companies have tremendous growth in sales. Um, some of them don't have profits yet. So it's a bit hard for a person of my age to get with that. I mean we used to think uh, you had revenue for vanity and uh, profits for sanity but that's sort of 30 years ago now i go to a, I go to a conference or listen to a zoom session and they're talking so many ti- 20 times revenue we always used to talk about so many times profit which is price earnings so it's very hard for a person of my age to get to grips with the Um, high values, uh, high prices of the technology companies. The good companies, the solid companies, they seem very high too on traditional value, and this is because of low interest rates and the quantity of money available. So this could continue for some time. Uh, I'm not sure what's going to prick the bubble, if you like, but... uh, I guess something will eventually. Uh, there's a lot of IPOs and traditionally, excuse me, that's, that's been an indication of a hot market when there's a lot of new flotations. And we're getting that now. There doesn't seem to be a frenzy though of the public. The public are in the market, but I don't see a frenzy like that has uh, caused some bubbles to burst. I suspect it could go on for some time. Uh, but it's hard to see big advances from the current levels.
0: What about in terms of opportunities? Which, which sectors of the economy do you see opportunities for growth in?
1: Well, uh, I attended this, by Zoom this SON conference at Hearts and Minds last Friday. And I think seven out of the ten recommendations were technology companies. So, it's the new industries, the disruptors, the technology, or those that have a, a really good position in their market, so they've got pricing power, so that if they're hit by increased costs, they can pass on pricing. I think that it's those quality companies that will continue to do well.
0: Inversely, what about challenges? Which, which sectors of the economy do you think are challenged in the long term?
1: Nearly every industry can be subject to disruption, it seems, nowadays, but uh, you have to think of the financial sector and banking as subject to fintech attack, but you take a simple industry like taxis, you know, and along comes Uber, or um, the local greengrocer, and along comes the supermarket, and then comes home deliveries. So technology is causing huge changes throughout. I mean, maybe some of the service industries are better protected. Uh, Maybe lawyers, accountants, uh, the barber, I can't see those sort of industries being affected as much.
0: When you look at general business conditions, are you buoyant as we move ahead to 2022?
1: Well, We've had a huge disruption for nearly two years from COVID and lockdowns and uh, quite an extraordinary period, really. Um, I'm, I'm surprised during this period at how the community is been prepared to give up their freedom for maybe the better good of community action, addressing this um, attack on us. But it's been quite extraordinary, uh, the lockdowns we've had and uh, the restrictions on our freedom of movement and getting together uh, in in addressing a a virus that we'll have to live with. Um, As we're getting vaccinated, we're coming to terms with it and we've altered our behaviour. We do more work from home. And so forth, but it surprised me how we've accepted government authority over our lives to the extent we have. I've been surprised at the lack of religious leaders in the, on the news. You'd think a, a big attack like this, you'd be marshalling the community spirit and Christianity and that. You haven't seen the religious leaders on the news. Um, I guess that means we're becoming a secular society. Um, But as we get uh, the vaccination and come to live with it, I think we'll have a really strong rebound for a year. Uh, Unemployment will fall, um, people will start spending Our buoyancy will return, international travel will return. But after that period, we'll be facing the the life we had before COVID, economically. And that wasn't great growth. There wasn't much productivity. We're in danger of going into a period of stagflation. Um, Rising prices, but not much productivity growth after the recovery period. And we really need uh, to have the reforms we had under the Hawk Keating, uh, Howard period, frankly. Uh, we need new reforms, uh, a, a new... And we don't seem to be getting that vision from either political party, frankly.
0: That segues well into my next question, which is leadership. When you reflect on the past two years or so, how would you evaluate the leadership being shown by the federal government and inversely the state government?
1: I think there's been a lack of leadership worldwide. I mean, you look at UK leadership, you look at USA leadership you look at uh, European leadership outside Merkel and Draghi, there's been a lack of leadership throughout the world. And um, I think our leadership's been average. Uh, I think some of the states have been too provincial and too draconian in their actions and haven't had the spirit of, of... being Australian. I'm Australian 1, 2 and 3. I'm not Victorian. And I, I find it difficult that there hasn't been better cooperation throughout the country. There's also been lack of leadership and acceptance of, le- of leadership from world organisations. This is a worldwide pandemic. And you'd think the UN would have a bigger role. You'd think WHO, World World Health Organisation. You'd think with uh, people being uh, more interested in uh, self-sufficiency in USA and China and elsewhere, uh, that the World Trade Organisation would come to the fore more. So, uh, we've had a worldwide pandemic, but uh, I think we've had a retreat from... worldwide organisations and cooperation, and there's been a fall in international trade.
0: What about trade? Where do you see Australia's trade future lies? Is it continuing with the US or is it in particular with our security alliances or is it, you know, further in the Pacific and potentially with China?
1: I think it's more with the the Asian region Uh, China is huge and uh, they're a big buyer of nearly every product, especially raw materials. And um, it's unfortunate that we've got into the position we have with China. Uh, We don't want to be bullied and we've got to stand on our own feet. But uh, one would have hoped we'd have more nuancing of diplomacy in our relationships with them. It's got to a stage now where it's difficult for us to do that. But I think, earlier on, we could have had more advice from Foreign Affairs Department, or DFAT, in our interactions with China. And uh, they deteriorated and it's hard to see how they'll be resumed to a normal
0: position. You've sat on numerous company boards and been chairman of many businesses over your time, including, obviously, Woodside Petroleum, ANZ Banking Group. You've been on the board of Pacific Dunlop, GIC... Sorry, QIC, CSR Limited, and so forth. I'd be interested to, to get a gauge on what you see are the key skills that are required of directors in today's age.
1: The key, you're not talking the CEO or chairman. I, I think. The key qualities of a director would be integrity, a decent human that the colleagues respect, so that, and one that fits in, listens as well as talks. The good directors I came across were the ones that spoke out on an issue, even if what they said wasn't the common thought round the table. In other words, you don't want yes people. You want comradeship and companionship, you want some... But you want someone to say, to be prepared to say things uh, that they feel and uh, are well based, that aren't necessarily what's expected round the table. In other words, a contrary view. Also, experience in business, experience in society, I think is very important, and an intellectual capability and prepared to work to learn the industry in which they're a director of.
0: I want to ask you about the key issues that boards are facing at the moment. In particular, there's a lot of talk around ESG, around climate change. Boards uh, tend to be spending a lot of their weekends looking over board reports. Give us uh, an idea of how that's changed over the years.
1: Enormously, I think. Uh, I mean, the, the two big changes since my day, one would be technology, in other words, boards have to uh, look at the technology and how it mo- of their industry and how it may change and be disrupted and you ne- therefore need uh, some members of the board that have uh, scientific knowledge, not just general knowledge and the other is uh, governance the uh, You're just not there to make a profit this year, you're there to make a profit for the long term for shareholders. And that means you've got to be uh, accepted uh, by your employees in your behaviour, so you attract good employees. You've got to have a product that the community wants and is happy to buy. Uh, So you've got to conduct the company in a way that's acceptable to the community, which means whole emphasis on social behaviour within the company. It also means addressing uh, the company's role in climate change, frankly. They're very big issues, and uh, these... Are, and governance. These are issues that are different to twenty, thirty years ago.
0: Let's talk about Flagstaff Partners, the business of which you're the chairman of. It has a, a storied history in corporate advisory and and uh, equity raisings and, and various other financial products. Tell me about the business in terms of what it specialises in and, and some of the deals that it's been working on.
1: Well, it's a, a boutique corporate advisory firm. And uh, the essence is that uh, Companies may want a, a big investment house to give advice and also fundraising. They should also, so in many cases, have a second opinion of someone more independent that's not going to benefit if there's a capital raising or not, that just gives advice and it has a long-term relationship. So, we don't do capital raisings. We refer the company to... Uh, one of the big firms. We relate with each of them. In many cases, we're a second advisor or complementary advisor to a big firm. And I think that brings another set of eyes. We're more independent. Uh, we're, we're more longer term thinking rather than the next deal for that company. So I think there's a, um, a role for boutique advisory firms. And there's quite a number of them in New York and uh, London where senior partners of big firms have decided to set up their own firm. And uh, uh, it's a growing field, actually. I won't go into the clients, but we, we're a broad range of clients rather than uh, we're generalists, applying uh, common sense and experience.
0: And without naming your clients, what are the what are the themes or what's the sentiment like amongst clients? Are they in a period of rapid expansion? Are they consolidating given the uncertainty of recent years? Uh, it
1: depends on the client, obviously. But some want to uh, expand and look at opportunities for acquisitions. Others feel they might be subject to a takeover offer, so they want advice as to how they would handle that and prepare for it. Uh, Others want capital advice that they've got a big cash flow. Should they pay higher dividends or a capital return? uh, Or just accumulate cash pending a downturn? So it's that general advice. Why don't we go back to some of the broader
0: issues? Of course. I want to ask you about Melbourne. You're a proud Melburnian. When you look at the city today, do you think it's a shell of itself? Uh, or do you think that it's going to rebound to where it was a few years ago?
1: Oh, I think it will rebound. Uh, people are c- coming back to the city now. Uh, I think more people are driving in as a proportion and avoiding public transport but hopefully that'll change now there's starting to be activity the cities where people can meet uh, there's the legal advice the accounting advice the lunches people we naturally are animals that want to we're gregarious people or animals and I think uh there's an argument for clumps of people, or cities, and I don't think the city will hollow out at all.
0: What about the university sector? It's obviously been smashed recently, yeah. given the you know students not able to come here and, and close borders. How how well do you think our universities, either here in Melbourne or in in Australia, will be able to adapt next year and beyond?
1: Well, they're having financial difficulties because of the lack of foreign students. Hopefully they'll come back. I don't think they've had a very good rapport with the federal government. I think they've been harshly treated, frankly, uh, for various reasons. Uh, There's the argument that they should focus on the Australian students more, but but they needed the foreign students. The foreign students were there, the foreign students pay, and that subsidises their research. I think uh, the Commonwealth Government, the Federal Government's got to face up to the fact that we are a high-wage society and therefore we've got to be skilled and therefore we've got to start with education at the school uh, and at university. And I think we've got to put more money into education. It's probably the best investment this country can make. Then I think the federal government's got to have a vision that we're going to be a skilled nation. Therefore, it's got to support education. It should support research more, I think. Give more money to the CSIRO, more money to uh, NHMRC, National Health and Medical Research Council. I mean, these uh, PhD students in medicine spend 20% of the year applying for grants from NH and MRC, and the success rate's about 20 per cent. And yet they're talented people. And and we should have more of them, and that should give rise to a uh, pharmaceutical industry. I think the government uh, should set up some more institutes uh, because they're very focused. Uh, Our medical uh, research institutes are excellent. We should have one in artificial intelligence. We should have one, I think, in cyber security. Maybe there there should be a separate institute just addressing climate change and how we can uh, go into renewables and have uh, reliability of supply at the same time. We probably need a lot more research into hydrogen. Um, A lot more is being done overseas pro rata than being done in Australia in this area. I'd like to see the Commonwealth government give incentives to attract key companies to Australia, like uh, in semiconductors. Why don't we attract the Taiwan semiconductor? company that's the leading company in the world, or Samsung, and subsidise them. Because if we had a semiconductor production, it would give rise to ancillary industries from it, and we'd start to get into this high technology. Um, You know, why can't we make our own solar panels? Why can't we make our own windmills? Uh, Couldn't we uh, attract the leading companies in the world to set up a facility in Australia? So, uh, I think we've got to be a lot more highly skilled. We've got to give incentives, I think, for new industries to start here. And once they start, they'll give rise to cousin industries.
0: Let's talk about the political landscape. There's a federal election on the horizon. What do you think will be the key issues?
1: I imagine the the government will seek to make the key issues, first, the the economy, uh, and, secondly, defence, as they feel. The people trust them more on managing the economy, and they think that they are stronger on security. Uh, I imagine the opposition will go more for uh, climate change measures, education and social welfare. Uh, who, who sets the agenda will, is yet to be decided. But there's no real vision. There's uh, the, the debate of the issues in Australia, I think, is far too limited. And you come to an election, you don't... Parties, either party, doesn't seem to want to open up new fields in case they get criticised or fall in a hole. So, it's a very... Narrow, uh, narrow range of uh, issues being put forward and n- narrow positions taken on them. I'd like to see much more debate on big issues uh, of our and the parties putting their policies in a vision for the future of Australia, um, which which we lack, frankly. Uh, like I've talked about, uh, you know, what new industries should we be trying to develop and how should we prepare for those industries? Um, we should have detailed policies on areas in the coal mines and other areas where employment's going to fall. How can we help the uh, transition those communities to the new world? I think. I think it's clear on climate change. The human race has really overrun the world. I mean, there's no other animal that started. Mm -hmm. There's a small number of people 100,000 years ago or 10,000 years ago even, and we've just populated. And we've been the most destructive a- animal the world's ever seen in killing other animals and killing our flora and fauna. And now we've got to a stage where we've uh, we're so so important in that we, we occupy so much of the world and we influence it so much that we've got to uh, uh, harmonise our existence with with nature. It's as broad as that, thank you. And I think therefore we've got to address climate much more, in a much more serious manner. We should have debate on carbon tax um, as a way through the market of uh, uh, adjusting our economy to, to, being, uh, to having fewer emissions. But politically, that's off the agenda. But that's sad. We should be discussing small nuclear Modules. If you put a nuclear module in the country, like Portland or somewhere, to support a, an aluminium refinery or smelter, you, you decentralise a lot of industry, help a lot of rural situation uh, centres, and uh, as I understand it, these smaller modules are much safer and less expensive, pro rata. and and less intrusive into the community. So if you wanted to really address climate change, I, I think you have to discuss the peaceful use of nuclear power.
0: I want to ask you about attracting talent to parliament in terms of actually attracting talent to talented candidates and then actually having talented parliamentarians are you seeing that there's a lack of talent in either party either major party at the moment I mean why would private sector people want to get into a a public sector job like that when there's so much scrutiny
1: yeah I I think we'd all like to see more talent in Parliament I mean we're a democratic system and we are brought up for democracy and it seems to work here in America and Canada and UK. But I see in, uh, what do they call these, uh, public polling in America and elsewhere, maybe here, a lot of the young are not in favour of democracy. It just surprises me. And a lot of the world gets on quite well without being democratic. And. I think the US's leadership in the world suffered a lot with the global financial crisis. This was a problem of uh, capitalism. It was a problem of the the subordinated debt in housing. It started in America and went around the world. China and other countries went through this very well. So I think we, our system lost a lot of international prestige from GFC and uh, a lot of other governments uh, are doing well for their people, even if not for freedom. And maybe if you're very poor, uh, food and housing and education uh, are much more important than freedom. We're a high-income country and we're a democracy. But I I think we've got to start to say, can we improve our democracy? This may be... This may be difficult. It may be changing the constitution. You'd start with saying the behaviour in parliament is not satisfactory for our community. Uh, They don't meet very many days of the year. Australian parliament meets about half the number of days that the US or, or, Brit or UK parliaments meet. Um, they shouldn't work at night after a certain hour. Why, why can't they work nine till five? I think in UK they lowered the hours so that you don't have this working late hours and then going for a drink and mixing uh, with secretaries so much. But The behaviour has to be improved. The discussion. I don't know why people debate in Parliament. If everyone votes on party lines, the debate is irrelevant. Question time doesn't seem to uh, be uh, seeking out information and giving information. It's it's, uh, point scoring. It's uh, like theatre. I think the whole handling of Parliament should be, should be examined and improved. Secondly, we'd, people would like more talent in Parliament. How you get that, I'm not sure. But I'd like to hear a discussion about whether the constitution gets changed and say a third of the Senate is not elected but nominated people. You might have a list of 400 or 500 outstanding people in the community as judged by a group of people, uh, high court judges, uh, uh, former premiers or prime ministers, uh, vice chancellors, And and then you might say, well, we'll appoint a proportion of the Senate in the same proportion as the political party. So everyone on this list would have to say they're Labor, Liberal or Independent. And if um, the Liberals had 40% of the Senate, 40% nominated. And therefore you'd get people coming in, not having to go through an election, outstanding people, and they might just come in for five years or something like that as an appointment. The other problem, I think, is that we have career uh, politicians. If you're in the Labor Party, you've probably... Um, you may have been a teacher. You've joined the union, a, a union, and then you go into parliament. And if you're in the uh, coalition or the Liberal Party, uh, you've gone to university and then you've gone to a think tank and then you've joined... Uh, the staff of a parliamentarian. And then you go into parliament yourself. So parliament is is lacking a a cross-section of the community to represent us, that's the problem. And then they stay there. So if we said you could only be in parliament for two terms, eight years, and each party could uh, nominate a quarter of their members to stay a third term. Uh, So you get uh, experienced people for being uh, Prime Minister and Treasurer. I think a lot of people in the community would say, I'll give eight years of my life up and go into parliament and then come back into business. So I'm not suggesting these uh, particular things. I'm just saying, if we had a debate, of how to improve democracy. And these sort of things were put on the table and discussed. And we took an attitude that uh, democracy is a good system, but we should address improving it. So I don't see that debate going on. I think that's sad and uh, to our detriment.
0: I want to ask you about one other prevailing issue at the moment that is the issue and the pressure being uh, put on supply chains right across the world. What's your view on that? What's your reading on it?
1: Well, the the world is uh, moving, I think, into a US partnership of coalition of countries and a Chinese collection of countries. And as uh, more tension arises in the... Uh, between these two groups, especially between China and uh, USA, uh, supply chains can be interrupted. And therefore, you need um, a capability within your country of having a basis, uh, uh, some basic supply of pharmaceuticals or co- uh, vaccinate, COVID vaccination. Um, of building materials, of defence, to support, uh, of oil suppliers. You need a... So, uh, I think there'll be a slowdown in the growth we've had in international trade and more looking at basic self-sufficiency in key industries. And I think we should look at that and work out which industries we don't have a capability in and maybe we should subsidise and, and encourage someone from overseas, if necessary, to establish here. Um, I know, the, Jap- the Japan uh, uh, In Japan, they've recently appointed a, a minister for economic self-sufficiency, just to focus on this. I think it would be quite a good idea if we did. Oh, going back to your earlier question about Democracy and parliament. I mean, if we're going to have improved democracy, I mentioned improving the debate and the behaviour, improving the talent within parliament. We should also have an integrity commission. Why shouldn't you have uh, an anti-corruption integrity commission to see that your parliamentarians, parliaments, being, and governments being conducted in a proper manner? And we've been talking about this for years and it still hasn't happened. So that's another thing I'd I'd move on
0: Over the years ahead, how does Australia remain in a competitive position globally when our corporate tax is still quite a lot higher than other countries? Uh, We don't, perhaps, have the technology facilities that, you know, the US has as Silicon Valley or Israel may have. What needs to be done to ensure Australia really remains a destination for capital?
1: What was... You you mentioned...
0: Corporate
1: taxes. Yeah, well, corporate taxes, five years ago, we were 30 per cent. And, you know, uh, USA had gone down to 21 and England to 19. But the 30 per cent doesn't look too bad now. Uh, uh, USA is up, uh, upping under the Democrats. Will up their corporate tax, maybe to twenty-six percent. I'm not sure where it is. I think um, there's that that wi- worldwide movement for lowering corporate taxes has stopped. I think, and there's now discussions of a minimum fifteen percent around the world to get the uh, companies that are using havens and get these. Um, High-tech companies that don't produce a product but uh, were able to provide their facilities on the internet to be caught at least in some country. So uh, I think, as against uh, five years ago, our corporate tax doesn't look too bad. Um, what do what was what do we need to do? We we I think we need to recognise that we need to be a skilled country if we're going to have a high standard of living and we have a high cost. And w- focus again on education, research and attracting the industries of the future. And this can be done. Uh, Singapore's done it for the last 20 years. I mean, Singapore was a, a swamp really, or just a little island. And they worked out what industries they needed and they set about attracting them. And then they give... It gives rise to support industries. You get a cluster then. Uh, We've just relied on uh, traditional industries, of farming and mining, and service industries. Uh, The private sector, you know, I'm amazed at how we're springing up with a lot of technology in the private sector. And a lot of people are making a lot of money. So there's a lot of creative uh, talent here. And they're getting funded. But some of the big industries in technology, if we brought them here, I think it would allow these smaller players and smaller industries to thrive as supporting them.
0: Now, my final question, I know you're not big on talking about yourself, so tell us about the the next chapter for Flagstaff Partners. Are you comfortable with where the business is at today or are you looking to grow? Well, Tony Burgess
1: and Paul Donnelly can speak more on that. Uh, We're about 30 employees. I can see us growing to 40, 45, maybe moving more actively interstate uh, over time. But it's not easy to get talent at the moment. There's a shortage of people. And... But I I see us having modest expansion. I see a need for the, the boutique, so I think that, it, it, that it'll be part of the economic scene and a growing part. So, I see a good future. Just on another subject, though, I think we need to, to re- resume immigration. Um, So many companies are telling us they just can't get people. And um, these students uh, used to do a lot of part-time work in restaurants and elsewhere, and that's being done by other people who are therefore not available for other jobs. Uh, I think our, our hospital system is... The nurses are mainly young migrants. And they're having a huge struggle now, so I think we need to keep our migration at, at a level that, say it was pre-COVID, and bring in school people. And that gives a vibrance and a, a diversity to our community, which is, I think, very healthy.
0: That's a good note to end on. Charles Good AC, one of the great Australians and one of the great Australian thinkers as well. Thanks for your time.
1: Pleasure.